All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege of gathering together as a family father built to fellowship in your son's good name, a family that you ordained from eternity past to gather together, even specifically this morning, Father, what a tremendous grace gift this is. We're so very grateful for it and for all that you've done for us, Father. Thank you for making days like this a reality. Thank you for tending to our souls and being so faithful to us, even though we can express extreme forms of faithlessness, Father. You're always with us. You shall, as you promised, never leave us or forsake us, Father. Thank you. Father, we miss those that can't be with us this morning, members of this beautiful congregation. And we just pray that we see them soon. Your will be done, of course, that you heal them, that whatever you have in store for them transpires sooner than later, Father, so that they might be relieved from whatever pressure they have that might be keeping them away from this wonderful fellowship we are about to enjoy. Father, we pray also for those that are still lost in this world that we might be given the opportunity to evangelize them. We'd love to have more brothers and sisters in Christ in heaven, especially those that we love, that we'll have contact with as the holiday seasons roll in, Father, full force. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt. Father, we just pray for this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, practice these things. We're going to regain our footing from a couple of weeks back, but before I jump into a review of this past week's lessons, I'd like to draw your attention once again to what I'll call the cohesiveness of the lessons that the Spirit inspired in India recently. As I read through Scott's notes, the same basic themes that have been coming from this pulpit over the past few years were abundantly evident in those messages. Things like faith, repentance, humility, fruit, and most of all, love. All of these topics were neatly orchestrated into three simple, repeatable, reusable messages. And I just want to reflect on that for a moment. Um, maybe some of you don't know this about the nature of Christ Saves Ministries. Scott spends a lot of his time training these foreign, these foreign men. Uh, CSM, or Christ Saves Ministries, isn't just a financial charity. It's a knowledge one also. And unlike many folks do nowadays, he gives his messages, even his notes away, for free. What this effectively means is that some pastor or evangelist in some part of the world that you can't even spell is going to teach one of the messages you heard this past week. And that's a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. And it's one of the distinctions that can be made between the evangelist and, say, a pastor even. An evangelist like Scott can create a very nice set of detailed notes and give them away because they are what we'll call generic by nature, fundamental to the gospel. And frankly, I don't dare do that with the vast majority of my notes because they are so family-specific, if that makes sense. Very family-specific. In fact, I believe that just about every time I've ever been attacked from without this ministry, it's because there's a 
context issue. People take and like to take things out of pastors' mouths. Conversations that might be midstream, in other words, with their congregation. There's a huge context issue there. And that's different. So what I mean to say is that the relationship between a pastor and one of his sheep is very intimate and therefore extremely contextual. However, a well-written message from an evangelist is much more difficult to take out of context than, say, a well-written message from a pastor. This reality is also why I believe there are challenges to joining a church like this one. There's such a deeply rooted context to our messages that someone from the outside is likely to remain confused for a while. Contrarily, Scott and Michael, two well-prepared evangelists, can go overseas and preach to strangers and there are no real context issues. So I just share that, just a little side note that occurred to me while I was preparing my message um, to encourage you to give Christ Saves Ministries the right perspective and also encourage you to visit their wonderful website. There's a plethora of documents and materials and updates and what have you on that website. You might just find something you like and become motivated yourself to use one of the downloadable documents to spread the good news. I also encourage you to support them if you can. They are doing wonderful things to the glory of God. All right. With that said, I want to review some of what we saw this past week from our India special messages and use these things to tie our minds back to our message series titled Practice These Things and the God of Peace Will Be With You. Last Sunday, for example, we received the message titled The Visible Fruits of Saving Faith. During that message, the Spirit made a very simple point worth reiterating. Like I said, these things were taught in India, literally the other side of the, the world. But yet the cohesiveness of the messages is the same. It's there. Here's the simple point from last Sunday's message that really stuck out to me. Again, the visible results of saving faith. God has made salvation something that even a child can understand. God has made salvation something that even a child can understand. I think one of the most strikingly humbling passages of Scripture is in Luke 18.15 and forward. Go there, Luke 18.15. It's just so simple. It's unbelievable how we pervert the simple things of the gospel truth of Jesus Christ Luke 18.15. Luke 18.15. I hear a lot of sniffling out there. I appreciate you coming nonetheless. I understand it's like that sick time of year. Luke 18.15. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them but when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, will not enter it at all. Like a child. We've had series on the faith of a child from this pulpit in the past, and that's really what Jesus is getting at. Truly I say to you, and when he says truly or truly, truly, he's saying, listen up. This is something you can rest your hat on. 
Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. I think when the Lord of Scripture, you know, the Word Himself, makes an assertion like this, it's impossible for us to deny the simplicity of it. Impossible. Again, one of the key themes from the message is, or the message titled The Visible Results of Saving Faith up here in the board was very simple. God has made salvation something that even a child can understand. Amen? Thank God that you don't need a Ph.D. from some distant seminary. Thank God you don't need to be a rocket scientist or have a, a 140 IQ to understand any of this. Because God has made salvation something that even a child can understand. And here's just a little analogy for you. A young girl walks up to a flower bed and sees one particular flower withering away among the vibrant others. She turns to her parents and asks, what's wrong with that one? It's not her answer that matters. It's that she is able to discern something is not right. Like a child, a person may not be able to fully articulate a truth in words, but they know it to be true. Even a child can tell when something's not right in this world. You might say, well, how does this child know such things? My answer, and your answer should be, God has enabled them. You have to understand that, that God has given mankind certain faculties, abilities. Go to Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18. I mean, what's the likelihood of a little girl having been taught at some Ph.D. level about the differences between uh, good and bad flowers? What's the likelihood of that? What's the likelihood that the parent even took any time in the history of that child's life and stopped and said, do you see the distinctions here? <laughs> or did that child just walk up to the flower bed and say, what's wrong with that one? The others are so beautiful. God made him able to do that. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress. Remember, we did a lot of work on that word suppress. It's active voice, if you remember. Present tense. It means that they actively do that day in and day out. Unrighteousness of men who actively suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. Well, who put it there? God did. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to create you so that you will be able to know me. I'm going to create you in such a way that things are going to be within you from the very beginning. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Not some high school teacher, not some elementary school teacher, not some Sunday school teacher, not even a pastor necessarily. God. God made it evident to them. And since God's not a God of partiality, He makes things evidence across the board. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, like a flower even, so that they are without excuse. Otherwise God would be unjust. 
So you see, even a child has been given the ability to see truth in this world, even through creation. And this precipitates a principle from last Sunday's message up here on the board, the visible results of saving faith. We cannot see the roots of a tree of faith just as we can't see someone's heart, but we can see the fruit of a tree of faith, which are the visible results, proofs in a believer's life. The visible, up here on the board, the visible results of saving faith are signs that a person has surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you read the Bible, it makes no sense otherwise. If you were to ask a child if something's changed, will there be evident changes? Of course there will be. Even a child understands that. Only a lawyer tries to wiggle around such truths. Or someone who's lawyering, Satan being the great attorney himself. Whether contemporary Christianity agrees or not, the Bible reveals certain characteristics are found in the lives of believers, specifically as a function of saving faith up here on the board. More from that message last Sunday. The visible results of saving faith, the believer has fear of the Lord. Psalm 103, 8 to 18, 119, 120, 161, Malachi 3, 16 to 18, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14, Isaiah 50, 10, Luke 18, 14, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. We'll get that in a moment. Ephesians 5, 21, Philippians 2, 12 to 13. We're starters. We're starters. A person will never know the Lord and not fear Him. Otherwise, he doesn't really intimately know who he is. The psalmist wrote about this very clearly up here on the board. Again, presumably the psalmist is a saved individual, and look at how they describe their relationship with the Lord God. Psalm 119, 120 in the Amplified Classic, My flesh trembles and shudders for fear and reverential, worshipful awe of you. And I am afraid and in dread of your judgments. That sounds like someone who knows the Lord God. And I don't know about you, but the more I learn and the more I read my Bible, the more this becomes my own attitude. The more I realize I really don't want to wrestle with God. Right? I really don't want to take that route. I mean, trust me, I've done it. I'm sure all of you are like, yeah, I've done it too. You have the bruises and the welts to prove it. Some of you are wearing them right now. I can see the look on your faces. How's that going for you? <laughs> so I've been thinking a lot about this lately, how fearful we ought to be of God. How fearful we ought to be of God. How quickly we seem to forget about His immensity, His power, and His wrath even. I recall hearing several sermons from the late R.C. Sproul on the topic of God's wrath and what he called a great lie in modern Christianity. That is that God, quote, loves those who willfully disobey Him until the end. And the crux of his argument was twofold. Number one, the Bible clearly depicts God's hatred of sin. Number two, God doesn't send sin to hell. He sends sinners. Food for thought. In any case, as we heard from the pulpit last Sunday, again, up here on the board, the believer has fear of the Lord. 
I want to look at one of the verses listed here. Go to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. I want to amplify it for a moment. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Because it is true, a true believer has fear of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 7, 1 reads, Therefore, having these promises, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of, the fle- of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now that's a pretty big statement. There's a lot going on there. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now last Sunday we focused on the word fear, but this morning I want to amplify something else, namely up here on the board, perfecting. Just think about this. What is the implication of that statement, perfecting holiness in the fear of God? You cannot perfect something that doesn't exist. The thing must first exist for this action verb to have any real meaning to it. For example, how do I perfect writing my name if I don't first know how to write? There's an implication, in other words. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You cannot perfect something that doesn't exist. The thing must first exist for the action verb to have any real meaning to it. What the Spirit's after here is the implication. That is, that in order to perfect holiness in the fear of God, one must have a portion of holiness to start with. One must have a portion of the thing to start with. The implication is that you have a starting point, some kind of a seed, or even if it's a lump of clay, something to start with. And, of course, this implies salvation since unbelievers literally have a zero portion of holiness being completely destitute, as the Bible abundantly articulates. In other words, you can't perfect something that doesn't even exist yet. The whole idea with perfecting, as I've taught you in the past, is the idea of maturing even, or completing something. And Philippians 1.6 comes to mind. He will perfect the thing he started in you, or complete a good work that he started in you. At salvation, with the implication being that something's there for him to sanctify, to start with. Only after we understand this fundamental implication, should we attempt to understand what Paul meant when he wrote about the fear of God, which was our focal point last Sunday. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Again, look at the verse, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. Of course, then the implication is that Paul is speaking to believers perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Up here on the board, we got phobos last week for the word fear. It means fear, terror, and reverence. See that in this verse and as, as well, Ephesians 5.21. In other words, the secondary implication is that a person who abides in the fear of God can only be a true believer. The first implication is that something exists, some form of holiness, some starting point exists. The the secondary implication is that a person who abides in the fear of God can only be a true believer, because you only get that starting point if you're an actual believer. Because unbelievers are completely destitute. There's nothing to work with at that point. So you don't perfect anything. You have a bigger problem. So here's what we learned uh, this past Sunday up here on the board. Fear and reverence. Reverence bows down in awe. It does not take God lightly or get casually familiar with Him. 
Reverence includes a healthy fear which accompanied all those who ever saw God. This attitude is present in the hearts of true believers. It's one of the hallmarks of a true believer. It's one of the ways you can actually give yourself a litmus test. Do I really fear God? Not fear in the way of punishment only. I've taught you this. But fear, reverential awe. Do I fear Him? Because this kind of fear is evident in true believers. This kind of fear bears immediate, lasting, even identifiable fruit. A person who has no regard, in other words. A person who says, oh, I'm a Christian, but has absolutely no regard, no fear of the Lord. Well, that's the point where we have to say, well, is this person, is the implication actually there? Is there any holiness to be perfected? So this fear bears immediate, lasting, identifiable fruit. Hence, a topic we've been studying in one way or another for months now. This is where these things dovetail together. Remember, other side of the, the globe, these lessons were being taught, and then they were shared with you all last week. The visible fruits of saving faith, another visible fruit in the lives of true believers is obedience. Obedience. Romans 1, 5, 16, 25 to 27, John 3, 36, 2 Corinthians 9, 13, 1 Peter 1, 1 to 2. John 3, 36, up here on the board reads, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Hmm. So the balance statement question is, how do we become now, you know, spiritual police? Oh, I don't see any obedience in you, and I don't see any of this in you, and I don't see any real fear of the Lord in you. So now all of a sudden we become spiritual police. I don't even play that game. I'm just a teacher. This is for you guys. This is for you to discern in your own souls what you see, you know, in the mirror. That's where all this starts. In the mirror. So are we to become spiritual police? May it never be. These reminders are for us personally to ponder ourselves. Even so, whenever we're faced with contemplating others and those times do arise, let's use our God-given judgment for the sake of motivation we're not supposed to be in the holiday season here, you know, tapping people on the shoulder and saying, I think you're a goner. That's not our job. If we see fruit that is evident of an unbeliever, then we ought to be motivated by love to give them the true gospel of Jesus Christ. When did beating someone into submission ever work? Jesus would just move on. The apostles would just move on. You've even got, you know, shake the dust off your feet. These people just don't want the truth. You're going to run into people like that. I'm going to run into family members this Christmas that are like that. They just don't want the truth. I've had to dust my feet. All right, you don't want the truth then. I'm here, I'm here to help if you want it. The Bible has all the answers you're looking for. I can see the misery in your eyes, and it's breaking my heart, but I'm not going to sit here and judge you, and I'm not going to try to beat you into submission. I'm going to be motivated to love you. I'm going to be motivated to give you the truth and to show you light. If that's the best I can do, is show you my life and my light, that's what I'll do. If that's what I'm relegated to, if the gospel has fallen on deaf ears, then I'll show you the light of Jesus Christ in my life. And that goes all the way back to our lessons on examples and Christ's good name and what kind of example you're revealing to the world because for, in many cases it's, it's us they're looking at. 
They don't even hear what we say anymore. They want to see it. You know, fruit. You know, fruit that even a child can understand? Remember that whole thing? Yeah. That's how it goes. All the Spirit's been reiterating up here on the board is this. The visible fruits of saving faith, these are signs that even a child can recognize. And it's not supposed to be difficult to see. It's as simple as seeing good or bad fruit on a tree. And if you take a, even a, a, you know, someone like, wasn't Brian here? Someone with Brian, like say Sean, right? And you, and you show him a nice orange tree, and one of the oranges is shriveled up and black and ready to fall off. He's going to go, what's wrong with that one, Dad? Let me take a rocket science to see that. I'll add this as food for thought up here on the board. One has to wonder about the motivation of a so-called Christian that refuses to consider fruit as evidence of saving faith. You have to ask and wonder at least, why would they refuse? I mean, the child doesn't refuse such things. I mean, God makes things evident to them that way. You know, like Sesame Street, one of these things just doesn't belong. You remember that? Well, that's the same thing. How would they know? Because God gave them the ability. So why do we play all these lawyering games? Why do we look for Scripture, and why do we, do, why do we sweat Scripture out so much when we're looking for loopholes? Rather than just read the red letters and see what Jesus had to say. Why do we refuse such obvious things? Probably because they're indictments. Sometimes on ourselves. So one has to wonder about the motivation of a so-called Christian that refuses to consider fruit as evidence of saving faith. As this past week of messages progressed, the Spirit added some more familiar materials with uh, raising the white flag. That was Tuesday, I believe. As is always the case, one message dovetailed into the next up here on the board. More on the visible results of saving faith. Characteristics such as fear of God, obedience, righteousness, and love. Sound familiar? This was taught in India. Sound familiar? Characteristics such as fear of God, obedience, righteousness, and love are products of genuine saving faith. It's seamless, as from the same piece of cloth. I like that word, seamless, because it implies perfect continuity without defect. And when we begin thinking about people, there's only one person worthy of this description without defect up here on the board. We got that as a principle on Tuesday. Our Lord's seamlessness His perfect person is a picture of the seamlessness of His salvation and sanctification as the Spirit's been showing us. He's the epitome of such things. He embodies such things. He's seamless, you see. We have seams all over the place. Why? Because we're master categorizers. One of the ways, you know, in psychology, maybe you haven't taken this before, but it doesn't matter. One of the ways a person tries to control a situation is to categorize it. Put it in a little bucket. Because once you put a little wrapper around it, you can put it up on a shelf. And you can take it out and put it away and take it out and put it away. That's a person who plays games. And if you have enough of those little categories, what's between all the categories? A bunch of seams. Lord didn't have that problem. He was one person. He would be the same person if he was standing here right now and he showed up and said, hey, y'all. He wouldn't talk like that, but you know what I mean. Right? Hey, y'all. I know he was just down in Florida, so, you know, whatever. As he was 2,000 years ago. Literally the same person. He wouldn't try to be somebody he's not. He wouldn't say, oh, my word, i got to get with the times. I better dress up. I better do this. I better act like this. I better get myself a little cell phone. I better do all these things, get on social networking. I better do all these things to kind of get with the times. No, he wouldn't. The only reason he would do any of that, maybe to get the gospel out more, that would be my only thing that I could see him doing. But he would be the same person. Why? Because he's seamless. 
We all have a seams all over ourselves. We act one way when we're in one crowd. We act another way when we're in another crowd. We act a third way, a fourth way, a fifth way. It depends. We're like, uh, what do you call us, schizophrenics? That's how we are. Jesus wasn't like that. Perfect seamlessness. Everything about him. I came here to seek and save that which was lost. Any questions? Even a child can understand this. Any questions? No, we're over here lawyering. Mm-hmm. Lawyering, what do lawyers like to do? Well, you see over here, the disclaimer says in the language was word, not, it was for, not A and N. Let's, let's categorize that out. That could, this evidence is thrown out of court. Wait a minute, it's obvious. He did it. It's thrown out of court. Because I'm, someone sneezed on the glove. Someone dropped the murder weapon before they put it in the bag. Thrown out of court. Wait a minute, isn't it obvious? The guy's standing right there. He's got blood all over him. He just killed a person. Thrown out of court. Now the guy's walking the street. That's the kind of garbage we do in our own soul. Let's throw that evidence out of court. Let's find a way to, you know, put a seam around it. hope this is making sense. Either that or I was on vacation too long. And you guys are like, where is he going vacation? What is he thinking about on vacation? You don't want to know. All I know is Jesus Christ was who he said he was. He showed up. He said, I am he. He said, I am here. I'm the great I am. Any questions? Everything I stand for, even a child can understand. So stop your lawyering. And oh, by the way, it's his spirit that's talking to you as individuals right now. Trust you me. Stop your lawyering. Stop your lawyering. Stop your lawyering. Okay, fair enough? Permutations, really? Our Lord's seamlessness, his perfect person is a picture of the seamlessness of his salvation and sanctification as the Spirit's been showing us. The practical side of this is what Scott spoke about on Tuesday up here on the board. There is no discrepancy with his gospel of salvation or the results that come from it. If Jesus was here right now, the Lord of salvation, what do you think he would act like? I'm serious. What would you expect Jesus Christ to be like? And where do you get off? Where do you get off? Where do you get off saying that about Him when you don't do it yourself? When you say, I am a Christian, and you act a completely another way. Oh, I am this thing. And you're perfectly fine with saying and doing and, and, and carrying on with lifestyles that are completely antagonistic. Do you follow what I'm getting at here? This is how easy it is. Jesus shows up, you'd say, well, he's the perfect example. I expect him to act a, a certain way. You'd probably fall out of your seat if he walked up here and smacked me upside the head. You'd be like, did Jesus just do that? Who, what? You would never expect it, right? That's what seamlessness looks like. So there's no discrepancy with his gospel or salvation or the results that come from it. In other words, there's an absolute self-contained, let's call it spherical, mutual inclusiveness in view when we speak about salvation and sanctification in the same sentence. There's a mutual inclusiveness in view when we speak about salvation and sanctification in the same sentence. You might say, there's no salvation without sanctification. And you might say there's no sanctification without salvation. And both of those statements are true. To suggest otherwise is to miss the very essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's salvation plan for mankind. And it's upon these simple facts that we arrive at the crux of the message titled Raising the White Flag. What the Bible teaches us is that God will not save an unrepentant person. God will not save an unrepentant person. God will not save them. Okay? Unrepentance is like a blockade to salvation. And since sanctification is impossible without salvation, this means that sanctification would be blockaded as well. It's purely a logical discussion, but I hope you get the point the Spirit's making here. 
Here's the principle from Tuesday's message up here on the board. A repentant heart is what God is looking for all throughout Holy Scripture. Up here on the board, the root of the problem for an unbeliever is an unrepentant heart. You say, what's the problem with unbelievers? And how, how does, you know, what's the problem? What, why, why is Jesus Christ going to say at the end of all this, I never knew you. But didn't I do all these things? Didn't I go to church? Yeah, but you never repented. You liked your, you liked your life before, and so you kept it. You never had any intention of giving up your life, of losing your life, to use Jesus' words, of losing your life to gain the one I have for you. You never had that intention. So I don't know you that way. That's the root problem, an unrepentant heart. The net-net is that an unrepentant heart is one that rejects the sovereignty of the one who created it. This is why we began this morning's message with the notion of fear and reverence, etc. It's because in the absence of such things, in the absence of fear, there's really no motivation for repentance, is there? What are you even afraid of? What are you repenting from? God lives his life, you live yours, right? What are you afraid of? He's got no power over you. You have no real fear of him. In the absence of that fear, there's no... Motivation for repentance. Why, why even repent? That's why the Bible says, don't fear the one who can kill you. Fear the one who can take your body and throw it into the pit of hell. That's the one you fear. Why would that even be written if people weren't fearless? Or at least being fearless. Because in the absence of fear, there's no real motivation for repentance. So what we learn is up here on the board, on the topic of repentance, God rescues those with broken, contrite hearts. The humble receive His grace. Psalm 51, 17, Isaiah 57, 15. God rescues those with broken, contrite hearts. Finally, on Thursday, we received a beautiful scripture-filled message titled, The Deity and Love of Christ. One of the things the Spirit dispelled quickly in that message was one particularly effective scheme of the devil. And because that's actually what this is. When you have to defend the deity of Christ, the implication is that someone is attacking it. Someone is undermining it. That's what I've taught you about the epistles, right? They always have a context. Paul was always, if it was Paul, Paul or, or Peter, was always, or John, you know, was trying to uh, thwart an attack on the gospel. Well, there's a lot of people out there that say Jesus Christ is not God. That's the whole premise of the Jehovah's, that Jesus Christ is not God. Which, if you read the Bible, Basically, he's making him a liar. So one of the things the Spirit dispelled quickly in that message was the scheme, one particular scheme of the devil, that is to infiltrate Christianity with lies about the deity of Christ. Up here on the board, we got this. Deity is part of who Christ is. Excuse me, but Satan would love people to believe in a counterfeit Jesus who is less than God himself. Oh, they don't mind if you raise him up. Just know that he's not God, is their proposition. As seen in many religions today. For example, the Muslims, Hindus, Jehovah's Witnesses. There are religions that actually accept that Jesus Christ was real. That he was even a messenger from God but they will not give him his actual identity. And as soon as you do that, you're basically calling him a liar. And if you can't trust one part of the Bible, how can you trust any part of the Bible? Either the Bible's infallible and absolutely 100% true, or it's not. 
There's no in-betweens. There's no, you know, like the average uh, ecumenical Christian wants you to do today? There's no updating the Bible. And contrary to what the Catholics think, the Pope does not supersede the Bible. The Pope is not the authority above the Word of God. That is so blasphemous, it's unbelievable. I, don't even want to, I wouldn't even want to see what's going to happen to the Popes across history. Because remember, there are gradations of punishment in hell. I, don't even want to, I wouldn't even want to be around that mess. The audacity of anybody to take down the deity of Christ is, is, beyond, is, is, is blasphemy. That's the, that's the best word I can give you. It's just blasphemous. You cannot call Jesus Christ or his spirit a liar. We call that in theology the blasphemy of the spirit. Anyways, in our endeavor to see this proven in Holy Scripture, the Spirit gave us the following principle up here on the board. The child that was promised in the Old Testament and eventually born for us was none other than the Creator Himself, equal to God the Father in heaven. Isaiah 7, 14, 9, 6. It logically follows then, up here on the board, God is said to be the Savior of all men, Jesus is clearly given the same title. Let's see that one last time. It's worth it. Go to 1 Timothy 4.10. 1 Timothy 4.10. God is said to be the Savior of all men. 1 Timothy 4.10. I mean, to us, well-trained individuals, this makes total sense because we know that God has a salvation plan for all of mankind. I've been teaching this for three years now, since October 2015. 1 Timothy 4.10. So it makes total sense that God can and should be called our Savior. I don't know why people don't. I guess it's, you know, whatever. 1 Timothy 4.10. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. So God is called the Savior of all men. Any questions? I don't think so. Even a child can see that. Okay? How about that Jesus is clearly given the same title? Go to 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. 2 Peter 1, verse 1. So God is called Savior of all men. 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. This is how simple this is, people. These are the types of verses you can use with folks like Jehovah's who say Jesus Christ is not God. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. By the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Any questions? God is our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. You know what that means? If you've ever had any math whatsoever, that's called the transitive property. Correct, Sean? Right? A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. No charge. Go take the SATs. Hurry up. All right. <laughs> this is like not rocket science. Only a lawyer tries to weasel around such things that even a child understands. Again, both God and Jesus are one. He says that in Scripture. Up here on the board, God is said to be the Savior of all men. Jesus is clearly given the same title. Once the deed of Jesus Christ is established, we have the rock. Excuse me, Peter Brady moment. <clears throat> We have, nobody got that? Only Melissa? Must be decrepit over there, Melissa. Too many reruns of the Brady Bunch. We have the rock to build our house upon, to borrow from Jesus in Matthew 7. Once we have the deity of Christ established, we have the rock. Now, it's when we step back. So take everything we've looked at this morning, and we step back. You say, whew, that was a lot, right? That was a lot. And also think about the souls that were probably affected by just those three messages in India. Hundreds, right, Scott? 
Hundreds of people heard those three messages. All I did was just summarize them. And, and I gave it some glue to our message series, Practice These Things and the God of Peace Will Be With You. That's all I did. Just, just think about, step back, and think about how simple it is. Most of the hard work that I ever do from this pulpit, seriously, and I've taught you this, is dealing with the complexity of the lawyers on the outside. That's the hardest part. That's why we, that's why we can't stand our own teenage kids, because they learn how to lawyer. Everything was simple before, and then they grow up and everything becomes simple again. It's those teen years when they get a little bit cocky, and they want to lawyer. Most of the energy you spend is dispelling untruths, perversions from lawyering. Right? Most of my teaching is doing just that. If you were to peel this onion back all the way, you just see the gospel. And it's magnificent and it's beautiful. Amen? It's unbelievable. It's the thing we live for. It's the reason why two men went over on the other side of the planet um, and did what they did. And you just saw what they did. You saw and heard the messages. Not hard. Not hard. Even a child could understand those things. So if we step back and begin pondering all that the Lord has done for us, what we are overcome with is a sense of love and appreciation. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. When you step back and you see the big picture and you see what's actually going on and you get out of your adolescent phase of growth and you look back and you go, dang, he loves me. My word, he loves me. I want to spread this to other people because this is what I've been looking for my whole life. I've looked under every stone I've looked everywhere. I've looked to other people. I've looked to success. I've looked at every idol possible to mankind. I've looked at everything. He's what I've been looking for. I could get my mother up here and she's what? What are you, like 95 no more? <laughs> she's only like 75, I don't know. Right? She looks good for her age though, right? So that's what she'd tell you. See, I was looking my whole life. Is this fair, Ma? I was looking my whole life. I found Jesus. That was what I was looking for. 65 years it took her. You're a slow learner, huh, man? <laughs> See, I say that with the insulation of the pulpit. See what I'm saying? I'm way up here, she's over there. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This is all we're looking for. At the end of the day, this is what we're looking for. I don't know about you, I just want to go to heaven and be loved. And be in love forever and ever and ever and not have any crap trying to get in all these distractions right trying to get in and ruin it and like pervert it beautiful it's perfect and everything everything sin i hate sin amen i mean i hate it so bad it's a disease hate it so bad it's a disease it infects all of us. And it influences all of us. And every time we let it do that thing in our lives, our love suffers. Our, the sense of love with our Lord and Savior suffers. Go to 1 John 4.16. I mean, there is an end goal here, people. There is a purpose to all this. John knew it. At the end of the day, we're, over, we're overwhelmed by it. And that's exactly what God wants. He wants you to be overwhelmed by Him. 1 John 4.16 We have come to know and have believed the love. It takes a long time sometimes to really let that sink in. But once you have the faculty, see, once you're saved, 
then your holiness can be perfected. But it's always on the basis and the premise that we fear Him, we revere Him. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. That's the sphere. By this, love is perfected. There's that word again. Perfected, matured. Has to be a starting point, though, you see? By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And that's a different kind of fear I've taught you. Worldly type fear, because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. What a beautiful picture of responding. And we are His bride after all, right? And brides respond. And when it's the perfect husband, ooh, what a beautiful thing that is. Here's a summary point from Thursday's message titled The Deity and Love of Christ up here on the board. Oh, I got it again here. The love of Christ is a supreme motivation in life, and His love in us can overcome all things. That was the summary point. Go to Romans 8.35. Romans 8.35. Again, the love of Christ is a supreme motivation in life, and His love in us can overcome all things things. Romans 8.35. Romans 8.35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? A bit of a rhetorical question. The answer is no. Nothing. Nothing. No one. Because he's never letting us go. He pulled you into the sphere of his love. And since He is God, He is also love. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? The answer is rhetorical. It's no one and nothing. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Do you see it? The power of love, not to quote Huey Lewis. But in all these things, we overwhelm... <laughs> Looks like it's just you again, Melissa. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what kind of lifestyle you had growing up, but hey. <laughs> but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life... It's a big word, by the way, death, just saying... I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, the point of the board, the love of Christ is a supreme motivation in life, and His love in us can overcome all things. That's what I... Philippians 4.13, up here on the board, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Well, where do you draw your strength from? You know that He loves you. No matter, no matter what you do, He loves you. No matter what happens in this life, if you're saved, you're staying saved. Now, before we partake in communion service, let's just tie this past week's lessons to where we left off a couple of weeks ago with part four of practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Here are just a few of our key principles, and do your very best, please, to tie these things together. Think about what the Spirit just said about love. It's our great motivation. Think about if Jesus Christ was standing right here. What would you expect Him to do? And what would be His motivation? When we talk about doing things, we talk about obedience, because that's orienting ourselves to God's will. We never want to do anything that's outside of His will. And then we talk about practical things, or practice, obedience and practice. There's no such thing as obedience that isn't put into practice. Otherwise, it's just lip service. It's just lip service. We looked at all those scriptures there. 
and our encouragement has been 2 Timothy 2.15 up here on the board. Be diligent in humility to present yourself. Receive a soldier's orders approved. So be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. As we noted this past week, the Bible uses the clothing analogy a lot to depict being filled with Christ, which means, which implies obedience, which implies practical living, which implies everything we talked about this morning that a child would say, well, what would you expect? Isn't that what a child would say? If this is the way it is, what would you expect from that thing? Holy Scripture uses words such as enduo in the Greek, which translates to put on up here on the board, Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh in regards or regard to its lusts. And up here on the board, as we know from Holy Scripture, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to put on love itself. Go to Colossians 3.12. Colossians 3.12. To put on the Lord Jesus Christ is to put on love itself. Adorn yourself. Drape yourself. Join Him in the sphere of His love. That's the point. I know I'm almost waxing poetic, and I apologize. I don't want it to be that way. I want it just to be a reality in your life, to realize what it is that the Spirit's trying to say to you this morning. All of this work we're doing, it's really simple. He just wants you to enjoy, look, He wants sweet fellowship with you. He wants as many of us as possible with Him. Isn't that what a loving God, isn't that what we would expect from a loving God? Colossians 3.12, So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, Kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Amen? Amen. We're out of time for now, but that's as far as we got with part four, uh, which, as you can see here this morning, dovetails perfectly with messages given on the other side of the earth. Incredible. Okay, gentlemen, please uh, get the elements ready. We will partake in communion service now.
thank you very much. Before we partake in communion service, let's just think about this morning's message. And I ask that you um, don't ever compromise on Jesus Christ, which means you don't ever compromise on who and what you are in Jesus Christ. Let the world see the light in you. Let the world see the love in you. Let the world see Jesus Christ in you. That's what it means to put on Jesus Christ and therefore put on love. Amen. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the person of Jesus Christ. Let's eat the bread. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup and remember his work. Okay, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this moment of peace and quiet and time to fellowship with you, to allow your spirit to sift through all the details, even of the messages, Father, over the past few years, and just have them all cut to the chase and just remember wholeheartedly that you love us. Everything you ever do for us as your children is out of love makes it so easy for us to respond, Father, as the bride of your Son, to respond in such a way that we love you back and we gain access through experience even in time to your love. What an indescribable gift all of this is. Father, we're just so grateful for all that you've done for us this morning and continue to do in our lives. And we just ask for your blessings as we take everything we've learned and contemplated out to a lost and dying world, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.